Well, again, like I said, tonight is our second to last study of the Lord's Prayer, which is taught to us, again, by Jesus himself, both in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, where he teaches his disciples and us what to say and how we ought to say it when we pray. And it also teaches us by what we're praying for, how we ought to live. And so, of course, you remember there's an invocation to God the Father, seven petitions total, three to the Father, four about the family, and it finally ends with the doxology that praises God for who he is and what he's going to do. So we've invoked Jesus' Father, who is now our Father, through Jesus. Then we've prayed for God to be holy to us, for his kingdom to come to earth, and for his will to take place even now in the sorry state that we're in. And then we prayed, of course, for our provision of needs, our daily bread, so to speak. We prayed for the forgiveness of our sins, maybe ones we don't even recognize, and that we ourselves would be like our Lord and be forgiving. And last time we gathered, we prayed that God would keep us from trial and sustain us by his power in the midst of temptation. And that brings us to our final of these seven petitions. Tonight we pray about being delivered from evil. And that poses us the question of what exactly evil is. How does the Bible understand evil? What does it have to do with sin and death? And how can we expect God to answer our prayer for salvation, for deliverance from this evil? And so that's what we're focusing on tonight. Now, in the past three months, our church with many other churches around the world, have been in prayer for the nation of Ukraine, who as of today are suffering uh, an invasion attempt by the Russian military under the command of Vladimir Putin and his uh, generals. And so as of today, I look this up, as of today, there have been speculations from different countries and and institutions that there has been anywhere between 25 to 50,000 casualties in this war over the last three months. That's a significant amount of people. And that's not only military personnel, but that's civilians too. Women, children, older people, people that are in, in no way involved in the war. And all this loss of life we've seen has had little, has been really little more than a power play by Russia's elite with almost nothing to show for it, nothing concrete politically for them so far. But Russia and Ukraine are not the only ones suffering in the world. For instance, in Yemen, a Middle Eastern country, for the past decade, they've had a number of political crises and civil wars, and this has all led to an ecological crisis that has caused the death of untold tens and hundreds of thousands of people. Starvation and disease continue to be widespread. It hits the elderly and the children the hardest. And so that's going on too. And in China, of course, there's the, the they're called the Uyghur Muslims. And this is, a, we probably could learn a little bit about them from uh, David and Misan. They're a, a, a Turkish uh, refugee group, a peaceful minority from their country of have settled in China. And for the past four or five years, the Chinese government has been rounding them up and putting them into concentration camps. There's just no other word for it. And they've been forced, uh, or they've been subject to forced sterilization. They've been driven into slave labor under 
the threat of physical violence, and for some of the young and women under the threat of sexual assault too. And then, of course, here in our own country, there's uh, a lot of division and crisis. But the thing that we've been focused on for the past two years has been COVID. And this has not just affected us, but the global population. And I read just recently that after nearly three years, about two and a half years of struggling with this, they report that a million Americans have died with COVID. You know, some it was because other comorbidities or so on and so forth. But a disease that did not exist three years ago has claimed more than a million lives in our country. And so this is really what I've just shown us in brief. Maybe it didn't feel brief to us hearing that listed off back to back. This is only a fraction of what the world has been through in the last 10 years not even a full generation. And so theologian, theologian rather, Wes Hill, recounts the story of a Canadian general, Romeo Dallaire, who in the 90s went to Rwanda. You remember that great crisis in uh, Rwanda that was happening where there was a, the Hutus were committing this terrible uh, genocide that was responsible for the slaughtering of well over a million Tutsi people, primarily really by barbaric ways, machine guns, machetes, terrible stuff. Well, Dallaire was, although he's a Canadian general, he was part of a U.S. task force that was brokering peace between these two people groups in this country during the Civil War. And after seeing the carnage firsthand for well over 100 days, he rather memorably in an interview said, in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him. I've smelled him. And I've even touched him. And what's so interesting to me is that even people that are not particularly religious or secular can see that our world is not only not as it should be, but there is something colossally, cosmically wrong with planet Earth. There are certain acts and events of violence and hatred and bigotry and death that aren't just a part of the natural cycle of life and death. We know that the bird eats the, the worm and then the bigger bird eats that bird and then a, a, you know, a, a mountain cat eats that. We know this, those natural cycles of death. This goes something far beyond that, something far more sinister, something that can really only be described as evil. Now, faced with the reality and presence of evil in our world, Hill is right to say that we as people cannot rely on abstract tropes and we can't rely on simple platitudes about sin simply being in the human heart. That's true enough. But when we see some of the things that happen, when we think back on the history, even within living memory, World War II, the colossal amount millions upon millions of death all over the globe, we, we see that there is something that defies our understanding. So we need to talk not just about what's going on in here, but we need to talk directly and confrontationally even about what we might call the demonic, what we might refer to when we talk to, or when we talk about rather, Satan. And it was this kind of evil that Jesus insisted his disciples pray for deliverance from. 
Not just the idea of evil as a concept, not just as, you know, a, a bad situation abstractly, but the personal malevolent reality of the, the being that we know as Satan, the adversary, not only of God, but of humanity as well. So John Chrysostom called him the one who wages uh, uh, wages against us an implacable war. And Martin Luther, you remember in his song, said his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. A Jesuit priest named Alfred Delp, who was part of the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, not unlike his Protestant pastor uh, contemporary Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his prison cell. He says, there is not only evil in this world, there is an evil one. And he's not only a principle of negation. In other words, he's not, it's not just negative things, but is a tough and formidable person known as the Antichrist. And so this is why some of our translations of the Lord's Prayer you might have in different versions of the Bible, render it not as just protect us or deliver us or save us from evil, but save us from the evil one. Certainly, Jesus understands that the, the concept of evil is linked inextricably to this evil one that we call the devil or Satan. So what the scripture makes clear is that not only we do we need to be rescued from the temptations of our own hearts, We've talked about that. Forgive us, Lord, of all these things that we do and, and, and think and say. So that's absolutely sure. But we also need to be rescued from the malevolent and powerful being known in Scripture. In the Old Testament as the Satan is the word, the Satan. He is the foe, the accuser, the, the enemy of God and his people. And he is bent on human suffering. That's why exist is to cause human suffering and to blaspheme God in any way he can. So Jesus' prayer that we would be delivered from evil, from the evil one, is in line with all of what we've read all over the Bible up until this point in the story of Scripture. So evil, again, isn't just a force, it's a person. In Genesis 3, we encounter this personal evil that takes the form of this mysterious serpent, who lures humanity out of paradise and into a re open, defiant rebellion against God. Job, likewise, suffers under the machinations of this Satan. Again, literally, his name means the accuser. And the prophet Daniel, when he sees the politics of his day, the empires of his day, he sees it in his visions as a supernatural demigod-like being that pulls the strings of the, of the Persian empire, which is why he calls this being the prince over the kingdom of Persia. So the New Testament continues with this understanding of evil as being personal and real and malevolent when Paul reminds Christians that our enemy really is not other people. He says, and even that's, that's even true of non-Christians, he says instead we contend against spiritual rulers, dark authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, which is to say not the physical material spaces. This 
thing and these things exist in a way that we can't even perceptibly see them always, but we see the effects that they have in our world. But Peter uh, is a bit more um, materialistic in terms of his metaphor. He doesn't call um, Satan a, like a cosmic power. He just says straight up that he's a crafty and roaring lion, sneaking up on whom he may devour. I can't help but when I read that description of Satan, think of Genesis 4, where God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. It's like a beast that is ready to overcome him. I think that's the same thinking that we have here. And finally, John envisions the devil, this devil, uh, not just as a serpent, but as a great and terrible dragon. But he's not only that, but he's uh, one that deceives every nation. Every nation, we read. And this, I believe, is every nation throughout history and on into the future. But eventually we do read that that enemy is thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur forever and ever. So we know that's where we're going. But all of this is, I think, good and clear indication why it's absolutely necessary for Jesus' disciples, both from yesteryear and here in this room today, to be people that pray, deliver us from evil. Because he certainly has in mind the evil one. Remember, Jesus has already done battle with this accuser. He was, he's been with him in the wilderness. He's seen how he will try to prey on our um, weaknesses, try to tempt us when we're alone. Jesus knows how insidious this evil one is. And one that from whom really we are totally powerless without the grace and mercy of God in our lives and on our side. Now, in some ways, this idea of a real and personal and malevolent being that wreaks havoc on the world through his own power and through his own demons seems kind of passe to the modern person. Sophisticated people that can say they believe in God and, and maybe spiritual things and spirits Somehow when it comes to the devil and demons, that just seems too cartoony to them. Um, uh, is, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. It just came to me. Uh, I think in The Unusual Suspects, you remember that movie? Uh, um, what is his name? Kevin Spacey, yes. He plays this, this character that's kind of pitiful and pathetic and He's being interviewed with a bunch of other criminals and they're trying to figure out who's uh, the prime suspect in this. And he's got kind of a limp. And, and then when they release him at the end of the movie, you see that limp straighten out with a voiceover of him saying the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he doesn't exist. And so, you know, that's symbolic of him being, you know, tricking the people around him. So, I think in, in, in some way that is true, that the greatest thing that the devil ever does is convince us he really has no power. He's not real. And so many people hold to that kind of idea uh, or to hold to the, uh, the this kind of idea of there being a personal malevolent devil as purely superstitious. That's something that we should discard with the Dark Ages. And I think this can make them suspicious that all spiritual activity that invokes Satan or any dark powers, including witchcraft and spiritualism, 
is it's just nonsense. It's not real. It's not true. It's not powerful. But it is interesting in recent years, I found that we as a society may be slipping back into thinking that these things are real in some sense. I was always amazed working at a company that was on the forefront of technological progress of how many of my coworkers were deeply embedded into the world of spirits and palm readings and astrology. And not just, you know, you know, some people read the horoscope in the newspaper for fun, you know, all that stuff, do a Ouija board at a party for fun. But these people were like convinced that, that I mean, those things were real, that there are uh, spiritual forces that influence the stars and all that stuff. And I mean, it's interesting to me that there seems to be uh, a return to that. I think it was in the Atlantic or maybe the Washington Post a few years ago. They've talked about this turn in American youth culture back to paganism and witchcraft. That's why when I went into <laughs> um, Five Below, you know, that little, uh, it's like a dollar store where everything's $5 here in Snellville for Easter candy. I turned around the corner and there's the book section and there's all these books on getting started in witchcraft and paganism. And I mean, that's like mainstream stuff now. I think you can find some of that stuff at Cracker Barrel, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's just, that's, it's, it really is kind of amazing how that's uh, taken our society by storm again. But I think uh, things like modern neuroscience and psychology have seen that human beings, in contrast to this superstition, this belief that we're completely free will beings, that nothing ever influences us but our own desires and attitudes, um, I think we are starting to see again that we are all beings that are being controlled by external and internal forces, whether we realize it or not. Scientists are seeing that microbiochemical reactions can affect our personality um, just as much in some way as the gravitational waves that the sun and moon produce on the earth. We're seeing that uh, our our bodies are not quite as autonomous as we think they are. Our minds are not completely um, impervious to the influence of these smaller, subtler realities, even if they seem to be imperceptible to us. So I think that accounts for partly the rise of astrology and witchcraft, even here in America. It shows that people realize, I think again, that the myth that they are fully their own is not quite true. Now, Turning to that as an answer is not a good solution, but it does present an interesting opportunity, I think, for Christians um, to engage with people that are open-minded to spiritual things, but just don't have the direction or the light of the gospel. But things are at play in creation that we see have a binding and controlling effect on us, again, even if we can't fully see them. And I think the same thing is true of evil. So think, for example, just from a really practical matter, just think in our world, even as Christians, we are told in the scriptures by Paul that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, uh, male or female, slave or free, but how easy it is for us as Christians to hold racial prejudices, to hold prejudices over a person of uh, the opposite gender, to have prejudices about people that are rich or poor, 
I mean, we know that in Christ, we're all at the foot of the cross level, but it seeps still into our minds as Christians where we think we're better than this person or we're better than that person or our culture is superior to this or or, our culture is superior to that. And we will think that even of fellow Christians sometimes. For people, these are some of these people for whom Christ died, we consider ourselves better than. And that's, I mean, we know the truth that we're all equal in Christ, and yet something within inside of us still pulls us back towards thinking lesser of people. And so uh, I think we live in a, in a world in which we, as a broken people, and we're, you know, we're. Nice, decent people here tonight at Maranatha Baptist Church. But we know that we're sinners and we know that the world out there is filled with sinners, broken people that build up broken societies and institutions. And even when we're not aware of it, we build up things and systems that we think are free or amoral, that have no judgments in them, that have no, you know, these things are neutral, not realizing those, that's the way that Satan operates in our world. He gets inside uh, uh, political buildings. He gets inside economic systems. He, he works with all of that stuff to twist and warp and, and distort um, our, our view of what's good and what's bad, what's righteous and what's evil. And so as broken people living in a broken society where Satan capitalizes on that and uh, allows us to be indifferent to the harm that people take into themselves and, and creates more frustrated and broken people, we see that there's something about this world that produces terrible and vicious cycles, whether you're here in America or you're somewhere in a developing country. We find that the reality is that uh, these cultures, although they could be totally different in how they handle Religion and music and food and families still have the same way of finding how to treat people as if they're not the image bearers of God. And so as it turns out, our modern social sciences, it seems to be, are finally catching up to the wisdom of ancient scripture. Evil is not just things that we do personally, as Wes Hill points out. It's the power under which we suffer. So I always like using this as an illustration. Augustus Toplady, he has that famous hymn, Rock of Ages. He writes of Christ the rock. He says, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. I think that's such a terrific way to describe sin because the reality of evil is not only that it's a personal guilt that we are culpable of the, the the sinful things that we do. That is a part of what sin and evil is. But sin and evil is also a cosmic power. It's external forces beyond what we can control. I, the Bible Project has terrific videos on this, I think, when it comes to um, uh, spiritual beings. Because it all throughout Scripture, we see... Um, we see not only uh, uh, kings and, 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 and generals and all this stuff, but we'll get glimpses of, of the, the evil and satanic gods and forces 
that influence these things. So if you go to a place like Genesis 6 and you wonder, what is that Nephilim business all about? These giants that walk the earth. I think the sense that we're supposed to get from reading that is that in some way, both by human desire and desire to have power and control and through these subtle and and unseen satanic forces, when these two wills combine, it creates this great, um, terrible, gigantic, titanic evil in the world. I think a great example of this, modern example, that is so easy to understand. When we look at somebody like an Adolf Hitler, which is unilaterally, I mean, just the greatest villain, perhaps in all of human history, certainly in the 20th century, in the modern world. We look at a man um, that is is, uh, kind of an interesting person in the sense that he just had a charisma and, and way about him and, a de, and a, almost a delusional um, view of reality that let him go from just kind of um, just a, a, a raving politician to being one of the most evil masterminds to have ever lived. How is it one person could cause so much destruction all over the planet if not in some way there is an evil satanic force pulling the strings behind him. So I I think that's what the Bible wants us to see, that the people in power, the systems that we see that take advantage of people, we think of in this world today how there are whole networks of, of unknown criminals that will kidnap and buy and sell people into slavery and human trafficking and And how is it this whole community of of tens of thousands of people exist all over the globe and have funding from from rich people and powerful, influential people? How is this stuff possible? I think the only way that we can truly explain and understand this is that, again, when we look at evil, it's not just the, the little temptations we have to fib, but it is the fact that Satan can co-opt our uh, our temptations and turn us into something almost in, um, unrecognizable, almost inhumanly evil. It, de- it really defies our ability to talk about it because we can't see demons. We can't just, you know, you know if you see a, a, a somebody that builds a regime and goes to war and slaughters a bunch of people, you can see the tanks and the bombs and the guns and the soldiers but you can't see the spiritual evil that's taking place behind the scenes. And so the solution for us is that it's, well, the solution is not just that we need to be nicer and friendlier people. Evil can't just be willed away from this world um, by our personal self-discipline or putting a few policies into play on a local or state or national level. We need a stronger intervention, a more powerful cure. We don't just need an education about how we can be better. We need an exorcism, Wes Hill says. The rest of the New Testament really wrestles with the news that we still face Satan's schemes and his plots and his opposition, and yet, although that's true, 
God has already delivered us from the evil one in Christ. So we're in these overlapping realities now. The author of Hebrews writes, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. And so, in the most surprising twist in the story of Scripture so far, the Son of God not only becomes incarnate, not only takes on human life, mortal human nature, but on his own accord, of his own will, he surrenders that life and dies, which is a a tool of the enemy. And in his death, he defeats evil and the evil one using the enemy's weapon against him. And so as our Orthodox siblings in the faith say in their worship services that Christ is trampling down death by death. His death is the thing which he himself weaponizes to destroy the power of sin and death and the devil. And John agrees with this in his first letter In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. God revealed himself to us in Christ so that he could destroy what the devil has done to us and to this world. Paul corroborates that further in Colossians. Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities. When he talks about rulers and authorities and thrones and powers and principalities, he's not talking just about political positions, although I think he is talking about that, but also the evil behind those things. So he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them in Christ. So in some way beyond our capacity beyond our full understanding of how this is possible, Jesus' death defanged the devil. He stole away his power to win the war that he tirelessly rages on the human race. That's why we have different atonement images all throughout the New Testament, different metaphors to help us understand this non-understandable reality that The Son of God died on the cross to defeat sin, hell, death, the devil, and to give us new life. In some way, his death achieved that. Now, again, we can get glimpses of that. We believe that he was punished in our place, that he was our substitute, that he was victorious over death. We we understand those, but really digging into that more, well, how did him dying do that? We're at a loss there. But however we look at these metaphors that we see in Scripture, here's the important reality. In Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, a decisive, final victory was one that sealed evil's fate once and for all. And it guaranteed that evil and the evil one would fail and ultimately succumb to an eternal death himself. And so, as Christians, when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are asking to be able to see, to be able to enjoy, and to be able to live in accord with what is already true because of Christ's death and resurrection. Even if we can't 
see its full effect yet. Since Christ has already done this, we're free to say, deliver us from this power. We know you have. Allow us to experience it in a way that we know we'll see in full effect when you come in glory. So Jesus has already made the prisoner exchange for us. He gave up his life so that we could go free. The devil wouldn't have power over us anymore. The evil one doesn't own us. But the reality is, until Christ comes and makes all things new, we will still be in a world where we feel the effects of his proximity. Where we're still scarred by the things that he's done to us and does to the people that we love and to this world that we love. But the victory of Jesus is real, even if it's not currently as visible as it will be one day. And so Hill concludes saying this, in confidence, in confidence, but also with trembling and tears, we can pray for the final public irreversible experience of celebrating the defeat of the regime of our enemy, even now. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying, Lord, let me enjoy the gospel in such a way that even though there's evil in this world, people are dying, my life is not as it should be, that I can celebrate what you've done for me and what you will do for me. That we don't let Satan have the final word, that he doesn't have the final say and how we feel about our life even, knowing that Christ has already accomplished the work and he'll bring it to fruition one day. And so as we close, I like how Pastor Malcolm Geit summarizes how by the victory of Christ's sacrifice that we can experience this reality. So he writes in his sonnet, Oh, do not bring us to the time of trial. Deliver us, deliver us from evil. How is it that your own petitions fail as evil slams its hammer to the anvil? For you were brought to trial and not delivered. You let the prince of darkness do his worst. The sun shrank from that sight. The whole world shivered. The fount of blessing let himself be cursed. How is it? Is it that your dereliction makes possible the answer to my prayer? Am I delivered by your bitter passion as you face every evil for me there? Unanswered answerer, forsaken friend, bring me to my beginning through your end. And we say amen to that. And as a church, together we are bold to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. And amen.